Hello. I thought BBC only stood for the British Broadcasting Corporation, but it also stands for the British Broadcasting Challenge. A group of people want to ensure that there is a proper debate about the future of public service broadcasting, in which they passionately believe. The group is chaired by someone with an astonishingly wide and varied experience of our business. Pat Young is a former Chief Creative Officer of BBC Television and a non-executive director at ITV Studios Limited. Among his many roles, he's also currently chair of the Cardiff University Governing Body, runs his own production company, and is chair of the British Broadcasting Challenge. He's also run a US cable channel. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, shortly before I went on holiday. Pat Young, British Broadcasting Challenge, what it is, why have you set it up? So the British Broadcasting Challenge was actually launched by uh, the late Lord Minor in late 2020. And it was set up because a group of concerned individuals basically felt that there wasn't enough discussion and debate and, if you want, agitation around the protection and the promotion of public service broadcasting. So that's why it was launched. It's a very small group. We very quickly decided that there are some groups which are greater campaigning. Our real strength is policy and um, working on policy and using policy to inform discussion and debate. And there's a, a small group of us. Well, I notice you've got a couple of props there. Steve Barnett, who's, of course, been in this field for many years, and also Gene Seaton, who was the historian, BBC historian, wrote the, the latest history of the BBC. That's right. Um, but it's it's one thing to have the policies. It's another to find an audience that wants to listen to you yes. and somehow get those policies pushed into public debate. How do you How do you manage to do that? Well, we've tried to work in a couple of ways. First of all, we have looked to leverage the widespread concern there is about the BBC in particular, but PSB in general. We started with an open letter which got signatures ranging from Armando Anuccio to Lord Attenborough and various points in between, which just said the way in which the government is discussing the future of public service broadcasting. I don't know if you remember Oliver Dowden when he was at DCMS and how many DCMS people have we had in the last six years, he had a secret panel to advise him on the future of PSB. We had no idea when they met. We had no idea what they discussed. They refused to produce minutes. And we said it's too important to be left to secret cabals and closeted meetings where we, the public, can't get access to the information. So we've done things like that, the open letter, which is a traditional British tactic, but it works well. Another level, we've done webinars, we've done web events, we've given our information to others who've used it in other ways. We see ourselves, as if you want, providing ammunition for others to put into their weapons. But the main thing is to get the discussion, the debate and the dialogue going at a proper level. Well, I suppose the background is that the BBC Charter is uh, had to be renewed by 2027. Uh, there are heaven knows how many investigations going to the licence fees uh, and so on. But one of the frustrations I feel about this, and I wonder if you share it, is that the discussion is all about the licence fee. Whereas that should be about the third issue down the road. It's first of all, do we need public service broadcasting? Secondly, how do we deliver it? Third, who should deliver it really? And fourth, how much do you pay for it? But again, that first argument, you know, where is it? What do we need? Uh, is there real evidence of market failure? Um, is very difficult to get going. So when, for example, the BBC under intense pressure, having lost about 30% 
or more of its purchasing power of the last 10 years, starts to make cuts. We all start arguing about the cuts they're making, not about the fact that they're having to make cuts of that scale. So, you know, we might say, local radio, they're doing cutting too much or elsewhere. But actually, this is a vice-like grip they're in. And every, every conversation starts about the license fee, not about public service broadcasting. Listen, we're living in an age of populism and of simplistic political argument. It's how you get lines like hate marches. And the BBC has been a victim of that. I mean, don't forget, Nadine Doris wanted to privatise Channel 4, which she believed took public money. When you've got a Secretary of State who doesn't even understand how the institution she wants to privatise is funded, you know you're a bit through the looking glass. She said that when she was up before a select committee and had been in the job That's for right. a while. I mean, it's staggering. Yeah, exactly. So when you start from there, we have our work cut out. But you are absolutely right that the debate about the licence fee is much, much bigger than how much does it cost. The debate should start with what is it there to do, how should it do it, and then how should it be paid for, and then what level should that payment be set at. In the document we just published, which is called Rebuilding the BBC for Britain and the World, we try to engage with those five big themes, independence, universal access, fair funding at scale, global reach, and also technology, world-class technology, but used for public benefit. And that's what we try to do in our most recent document, which is available on our website. And do you think there's a need also for Channel 4, now that it has avoided privatisation in the short term, it has to has made certain commitments, obviously, and is doing moving programming out of London, uh, but is facing some financial difficulty, the advertising market is very bad. But do you think there's a need also for Channel 4 to be involved in redefining what it's about? Because there is a danger that public service broadcasting is now only about the BBC when it used to be about, well, all the terrestrial broadcasters. And Channel 4 in particular, I don't see it clearly articulating a role for itself as a public service broadcaster. Am I being unfair? I think you're being slightly unfair, and we would include all of the terrestrial channels, and I'd even go as far to say that Sky do a number of things today which you could easily regard to be PSB. Sky Arts, for example, is a, you know, a landmark service uh, which could be on any of the broadcast channels. So... I think we do, I mean, we focus overly on the BBC. I do think Channel 4 need to get their mojo back. I think they've lost confidence. Um, they used to be setting the terms of the debate. Now I see them much more following. But I also think ITV, and, and I'll declare my interest, I'm a non-executive director at ITV Studios, but I think ITV and Channel 5 also have an important part to play in our PSB ecosystem, and we refer to it as an ecosystem. I think I lived in America for five years. One of the reasons in America you can have 50% of the supporters of a political party believing an election was stolen is because in America you've almost got personal news. If I watch Fox, it's about the big steal. If I watch MSNBC, the Democrats can do no wrong. We don't have that because of the total PSB ecosystem that we have. And the BBC sits at the centre of that like the sun, but the other constituent parts, including Channel 4, are really important. Now, when I was doing feedback for a number of years, one of the things that made me tear my hair out, um, there's not much left, actually, um, was the BBC's unwillingness to defend itself. I think that's gone yeah. on for a long time. But under this government, yeah. it seems to me that what's happened is the BBC has thought, and it had a Conservative chairman, of course, and it's got 
conservatives on its board or whatever, is that, look, there's no point arguing, making the basic case and arguing for an increase in the license fee or anything like that. We've got what we've got. Let's be as efficient as possible. Let's, okay, push impartiality as if we didn't always do it because we're not going to be, we're not going to be heard. There's no point going back. But the net result of that is that the BBC seems to me to be probably safeguarding its future as a big business, investing in America and everywhere else. But I'm not sure it's actually articulating a clear view of what its public service future is. And it's proceeding to make cuts. Um, uh, this is me editorializing, of course. Proceeding to make cuts which should be the subject of public discussion by itself, implementing them and telling people afterwards. So if you take the case of local radio, where there clearly is a market failure going on in terms of local journalists, the BBC says it's, it's continuing to invest, but actually there are cuts going on. It's ceasing to be local in certain times and places and so on. There was no widespread public discussion. How do we let the BBC get on with the job of managing itself and yet ensure that when it's making these sorts of cuts, there is a public debate? Well, I think in that brief monologue, you raise a number of issues. First of all, the political independence of the BBC. Yes, we've had party political chairmen since time. But where politics is now and how politics is conducted now, we no longer believe that that is a fit-for-purpose model. The idea that, that the chairman of the BBC is a rubber-stamped by the Prime Minister, we no longer think that that is fit-for-purpose for reasons which should be very apparent to people about what's happened now. We think the way the BBC is funded should be taken out of the hullabaloo of day-to-day -day politics, and there should be a much more democratic, open discussion model outcome about how we fund the, the BBC. The local journalism cuts that you talk about, I think, are a massive misstep by the BBC. But I also know, talking to people at the BBC, that when your money has gone down by 35 to 40% in real terms, things have to go. However, I think local journalism is the one of those things that redefines the BBC against Netflix, against Apple, against Disney. None of them do it. There is a democratic need as well as an audience need that the BBC should be serving. But the cuts that the BBC are facing are so deep that those decisions need to get taken. But who takes the decisions? Now, of course, you can't micromanage the BBC, and you know you were chief creative officer there and whatever, and it would be an impossible for you to ask the public about every decision you're going to take. But we're now in a situation where significant services are being cut. And there is not that wider debate. So the public that pays for the BBC doesn't have a choice or isn't involved in a discussion about what it should keep and what has to go at a time when, it, you know, as you say, 30, 35% of its value is, of its spending power has dropped over 10 years. Now, I know it's terribly difficult, but, you, but surely it should now say, these are the choices we face. We will have to take one of them. Let's have some form of public debate. Yeah, but I, I don't... I, if it's sort of beggar's auction, if you say, OK, do you want Strictly dance, Come Dancing or do you want local radio? I don't think that's how the BBC should have to conduct itself either. It needs to be properly funded at scale to deliver what we, the public, need it to deliver. And in order to get to that, you do have to break the BBC out of the current mechanisms and have a genuinely independent chair and governance who are there to protect the public interest and a genuinely open financial model which we, the public, can input into. But none of that is available to us at the moment. But I also believe that just saying, you know, you've got to make some difficult cuts, let's just throw it out to the crowd. I'm not sure the crowd is always 
the best way of resolving these things. Nobody had a, a war in Israel, Gaza in the business plan this year. You know, the BBC's had to respond to that. Where I think the BBC are weak is that they should be telling us just what it's cost them to respond to that conflict. You've worked in news. The operational challenges of getting that many people, that much equipment, that much access to information, that much data, as well as running the operations that you needed to run anyway, is really significant. Yeah, as you say, it won't have been in the budget at the beginning of the year, have you? And, and, and you know, yeah. various cuts that news and current affairs were having to make in the BBC, and Newsnight was obviously going to be cut as well, or at least significantly its budget reduced. All that's put aside, but what's actually happening is they're running up now, uh, inevitably, a, b- a bigger deficit. Yeah. And I doubt the government's going to help them out, so the cuts are going to be even worse. And also, you have to... After a month in, what, you start to rotate staff. Do you say, well, actually, we're going to have to cut back the scale of the coverage? We've already effectively cut back the scale of the coverage of Ukraine. Exactly. Now, yeah. how long and what happens when the spring offensives happen? Yeah, it's a very tough picture. But, I mean, we're faced with a, a general election in a year's time. It is unlikely that an incoming government, let's assume it's a Labour government, will massively increase the licence fee, should we put it politely. Therefore, the question of the method of funding will come up again. Are you committed, is your uh, campaigning group really, committed to a particular form of financing in the future? The licence fee has many benefits as well as disbenefits. I think the first thing we need to do is remove the burden on the BBC of paying for the licence fee of the over-75s. That whole thing needs to go, and the government should pick up the cost of the licence fees for over-75s because it's an important part of social contact for that community. Beyond that, our committee's view is that it needs to be universal, it needs to be progressive, it needs to have a progressive element to it, because income inequality in this country is now so great that the idea that you could have one flat fee for everyone, yeah, I don't think that holds any longer. So there needs to be a progressive element, whether that is through tax or through household charge, I mean, we all know what the other systems are, but it needs to be more progressive than the current licence fee system. That's our view on funding. Can I now, Pat, talk to you about your own career, which has been remarkable. I mean, as I say, you were Chief Creep Officer of the BBC. You were involved in sport for a long time. You ran a big cable network in the States, uh, independent producer. He's still going non-executive director, as you mentioned, of ITV Studios and whatever. Do you think it's ever easier for a person of colour like yourself to progress through the system now? I mean, what was it like when you started off? Were you conscious of being very much in a minority? When I started, yes. Uh, I started at London Weekend Television in 1991. I was recruited to work on a programme about Brixton 10 years on from the riots in 1981. And the oh, re- you're a black man, therefore you must do well, a black subject. Reason, as it were. Well, most black and, um, and Asian people who work in television of my generation either came in to work on Ebony, Eastern Eye, Black is Black, or to work on a story about black people. That's how most of us came in. And I came in to work on this programme about Brixton because the London programme, esteemed programme though it, that it was, didn't have any black people that could go to Brixton and knock on doors. That was literally my job, to, as an entry-level researcher... I spent most of my time going to Brixton looking for stories. And uh, everybody in Brixton knew I wasn't from Brixton, 
but you know, it sort of worked out okay. We did a good show with Lord Scarman and Trevor Phillips, and I got my contract extended, and it got extended again. However, even when I started, I was on a three-month contract, which I then got another three months, and then I got six months, and then I got a year. Today, we would be offering people contracts of days and weeks. And as a working-class kid for, from a single-parent family, I wouldn't have come into this industry on the basis of a of a contract that lasted days and weeks because I would not be able to sustain myself in London. And, and particularly, and also, if you came from outside of London, you wouldn't have a family floor or a fr- probably a friend's floor to sleep well, on. Well, this is one of the other big changes that's happened in our industry is that the great regional companies have all gone. The idea of, you know, Granada, Tynetes, Yorkshire, and strong BBC regions, Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester, all of that has gone. It's all become so centralised, which has made it much, much harder for working class and regionally diverse people to get into our industry. So that's where I started. I, I was at London Weekend for a couple of years, and I worked out that there were two men called Trevor who were making all the money, Trevor Phillips and Trevor McDonald. And they both were on screen. So I decided that I would try the on-screen uh, thing. I was slimmer <laughs> then than I am now, but I thought I'd give it a go. And I got a job at BBC Newsroom Southeast, um, working on social policy, which included race. Fantastic. I've been doing it a couple of weeks. I'd had a, a, an exclusive or two. It was all going well. And then my boss said to me, took me to one side. He was very caring about it. He said, look, he said, I know you sound like the people who live in this region, but a lot of BBC bigwigs who live in this region don't sound like you. So you're going to have to go to elocution lessons. And so at the age of 29, the BBC put me in elocution. And I remember one night I spent three and hours. What was it? Well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I mean, you're perfectly common. Elocution yep. lessons. I mean, they said I had a glottal I, stop. I, I, I'd never heard of that. And they put me in elocution lessons. And I remember <laughs> one night I spent three hours recording a 40 second voice piece. And it soon dawned on me that I wasn't in the BBC anyway, going to make it as an on screen person and went back off screen and actually decided producing is my thing. And so I worked at the Beeb. I went to Channel 4. I went to BBC Sport, which is a whole other world and ecosystem. The world of sports television is just different to everything else. They live in the outside broadcast trucks. You really have to know your sport. It's live, live, live all of the time. And then I got the chance to go to America and run a cable network. Has it been difficult for me as a black person? I've often been the only black person in the room, and I guess for women of a certain age, they know what that feels like. Have I experienced direct in-my-face racism? No, I don't think so. I remember being in America and I had a meeting, and somebody had I'd set the meeting up on the phone and somebody came down to reception to meet me. And they wandered around reception for 10 minutes, and I'm the only person there. They couldn't, in their head, connect my voice with a black person. So I've had that sort of disconnect. In America, they say I look local and sound foreign. So I wouldn't say that personally, individually, I face discrimination. What I have seen in our system is, you know, I've seen a lot of black people leave the system because there is no way through for them. I've seen a lot of people, people say to us, we need more black and Asian people in the industry because we want more of your stories. But when you tell them your stories... They either don't understand them or try to turn your story into their version of your story, at which point people say, do you know what, I've had enough, I'm off. And one of the things that strikes me with all of the broadcasters, 
they're all working really hard to recruit black and Asian people. But if you look at the percentage of black and Asian people that leave them every year, it's actually higher often than the number they're bringing in. They're really still struggling. Is there another problem with this, though? With broadcasting still concentrated in the major cities, they're concentrated where the majority of non-white people live. Result is there are large parts of the country which are very white, but see the country represented to them on screen as being rather a different one. Now, not saying what's right or wrong, but there is a disjunction there. And, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? Is the answer to that that, as you were suggesting earlier, we have to try and strengthen regional programming as well? We have to strengthen regional broadcasting anyway. One, for social good, employment reasons, and secondly, to get a range of voices and accents and stories on TV. Most black and Asian people live in London, but I don't think the output that we see reflects... We we see more black and brown people on television, especially in adverts, but I don't think they're really telling our stories. Lenny Henry's Three Little Birds, yes, that's absolutely one of our stories. But what I don't see, though I see more black and Asian people working in our industry, and you'd be be a curmudgeon to say that levels of employment haven't gone up. They have. But I still don't see a real shift in whose stories are we telling and who is telling the story. That's really interesting because there was an an Ofcom, I think, survey a wee while ago, which actually said that in terms of representation on screen, actually they were disproportionately more uh, black and Asian faces. Yeah, I would say take news out of it. Every news channel has <laughs> yeah. has, has a well, black and Asian. This is what they readers. were saying anyway, and also had the fact that presenters tend to be younger. But when they looked at people, decision makers, I, it's the yeah. case that still it's disproportionately it white, and therefore the people who are commissioning yeah. the stories and commissioning anyway. Now, some optimists would say it's a matter of time that'll be altered. You're suggesting with the, what you were saying to me earlier about the numbers of black and Asian people leaving broadcasting it might not get better well as i say the numbers have got better and you are seeing more black and asian people more disabled people and more work is outside of london that is changing and we should recognize that those changes it's the nature of the stories that are being told and i would say for a lot of women it's still a really recent thing that you're seeing stories like happy valley which are coming from the woman's perspective yes you've had stories with strong female characters but how often have we seen them coming from their point of view, their perspective? I'd also say that we need to do much more on class. You know, class is one of those things that we never discuss enough in our industry. And, you know, as much as stories don't go forward because people don't understand the racial dimension, I would say the same thing is true about class. And I support the push for more content to be made from the nations and regions. I think it's really important. But what we also have to remember at the same time is we are moving work away from where most black and Asian people live. You know, you're moving it from a city which is 60% black and Asian to parts of the country where there are very few black and Asian people. So it's a three-dimensional chess game that people have got to sort of think through. And as I say, I'm not a curmudgeon. We have made progress in terms of volume and we are more sensitised to it. But You know, you only have to look at people in my Twitter feed to know that there are still a lot of people out there who are in and feel the need to step out. And, you know, that's never good. 
And finally, Pat, I wanted to ask you about the, the, the Middle East conflict, not obviously about your own views about it, but about the sort of pressures that broadcasters, and in particular the BBC, are feeling. I mean, it's undeniable that there are Jewish figures working in the BBC and outside who are deeply troubled by the coverage and deeply upset and understandably so, and also the, the same for people who, uh, who are very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause and so on, particularly as the numbers get three and four times the number of Israeli casualties and so on. And the BBC is coming under intense pressure for various groups. I noticed that last week David Jordan and a colleague from the board went and talked to a, a Jewish group in, uh, I think, in North London and had a particularly tough time. At least they're getting out and explaining themselves. From your perspective, uh, and look at what other broadcasters are doing, uh, do you think there's a significant problem with the BBC's coverage or not? Or do you think they're doing pretty well in extraordinarily difficult circumstances? I think the BBC is doing it very well in very, very difficult circumstances. They will make mistakes. All broadcasters will, mis will make mistakes. I think the crucial thing is how quickly you understand the mistake and you own up to it. You put things in place to make sure those mistakes happen, don't happen again. I think the BBC have done a dreadful job of explaining themselves to the public. I, I think they've been on the back foot too much. I also, as a black person, have a real empathy with what Jewish staff members are going through. I remember when George Floyd died, even though I never saw myself being in that city and I never understood, I didn't at the time know what he did. What I did see was a black man dying, being murdered by a policeman under cover of authority, which does tally with experiences that I know about. And did put myself in a situation where I thought if I had been there, that could have been me or my brother or somebody that was close to me. And so I can understand how, in the, you know, it's, it's, I mean, Michelle Grant said to me, it's a, the definition almost of intergenerational trauma. What if you are a Jew working at the BBC or a Jewish person in the UK, when you see those scenes from Gaza, the dreadful, you know, horrific things that Hamas did, and I have no problems calling it a terrorist attack. I can understand why a Jewish person will see those things in a very different way to someone who doesn't have the lived experience or the family intergenerational experience of what it's like to be targeted for something that you have no control over. So I'm sure it's been very difficult for Jewish staff members and with the BBC being the, the big place that it is and with all of its world service, it's also, I'm sure, an incredibly difficult time for any Palestinian and and Arab staff members, and there's an internal job the BBC has to do to keep those people supported and to keep them safe. But in terms of the coverage of the conflict, I think the BBC have done as well as anybody else. I think they've done better than most, actually, especially given they haven't got access, direct access, really, to the war zone. They're relying on one or two reporters inside the war zone and a very restricted flow of information. Well, on that point, I was wondering myself when I looked at it, and I do think, uh, you know, from my point of view, they've done very good coverage. But the fundamental fact is that most of it is from Israel and from Jerusalem. And there are reasons for that. But the net result of that is that you need to be extremely careful that you, that isn't influencing your coverage, just in terms of the availability of pictures and other things. And I do think, pro, uh, you know, an explanation to the audience of what they can, where they can operate, where they can't, what they do know, what they don't know, and so on. Mm. It's terribly important, particularly as this moves into more and more of a propaganda war, which it almost invariably does. 
and who have got the pictures, yeah, I, you know, is important. Yeah. And, I mean, I think they almost need to do or find a way of doing what they started doing with natural history films, where at the end they showed you how did we tell that part of the story. You know, and they actually opened it up and explained that bit we filmed directly, this bit was inferred by other things that we'd seen, this bit was brought to us by a, you know... I think they, yeah, certainly online and on the website, they should start being more transparent about how they are managing to tell the story that they're able to to tell. Because they also have to think about the safety of their own journalists. It's a war zone. They can't put their own journalists in, in harm's way. But I think they could do more and get help the audience understand the complexities of modern war. And finally, Pat, if people are being interested, really interested in what you've had to say, I hope, and I'm sure they would, about the British Broadcasting Challenge, where do they find? How do they contact you? We're online at uh, BritishBroadcastingChallenge.com or on Twitter at PSB Futures. That's how they find us. Well, I hope they do. I will. I have. Pat Young, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Roger. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, I'll be back in the saddle after a break in Costa Rica. If you think BeWatch is helping to further the cause of supporting public service broadcasting, please help us. It's only £1.99 a month. And in return for this princely sum, you'll also be able to find out about my take on this week's interview in my weekly blog. You can do this easily and quickly by signing up to patreon.com forward slash BeWatch. And the link to this can be found on our website and in the description of this program on your podcast platform. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It's a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.